Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 30 in our series for 2017. And today's date is Friday the 25th of August. And Leon, this week we're talking to Margaret Johnson all the way from the USA. She's going to be talking to us all about coaching companies. She's a management coach and she's actually uh, she's actually written a book about uh, personal coaching. Then we have a Quite fascinating dissertation from Nicholas Gruen, and again, it's an example of how he thinks about new things or has new things about old things. Talking to us all about the Wellbeing Index used by Treasury, and for that matter, Treasuries around the world. Now let's listen to Margaret Johnson. Margaret Johnson, you're a credentialed executive corporate coach and uh, author now, and you coach a wide variety of companies, people in the oil and gas industry. What do you do? Well, I do have a technical background and I got into management when I worked in the power industry. So I feel like that I was coaching people, you know, at different levels in different ways way back then. And as I progressed in my career and done technical sales, I've had people ask me to coach and I've also had corporations ask me to coach their people. So I actually felt I wanted to get credentialed and know exactly what I was doing and do it well. So now I'm a credentialed coach and I work mainly with technical professionals. I also work with with uh, new managers and mid-level managers up to some executives, working with them on limitations and assumptions they have in the workplace about, you know, dealing with other people, politics, how to get ahead, how to manage their careers and help them kind of bust through those assumptions and get creative and unleash their ideas of how they could solve these problems and get ahead and then help them get courageous to take the steps that are necessary to actually make the move. How big an issue is it now about uh, people getting stuck in uh, in a rut and not being able to move? I think we all have that issue at one time or another in our lives. In fact, a lot of times we probably go through that a few times a day, just every time we want to make a decision. But I think what happens in the corporate world, depending on what your industry is doing and what's going on there, we kind of get you know into the culture of the organization and see what other people have done and what's okay and what might not be okay. And we get it in our head that you know there are certain ways we have to act or certain things we can do. And I think that that is what actually kind of holds us back. So I would say all of us have that, maybe not to the extreme, you know, some other people have, but all of us, I kind of think, deal with that maybe on a daily basis or overall in our career at different times where it really kind of feels like we're we're stuck occasionally. Uh, you've got a new book out for, from SOS to WOW. Uh, tell us, uh, what steps do you recommend? Well, first of all, the SOS to WOW is like the same old place or same old stuck that you're in and the WOW is where would you like to be? So it's really one is kind of realizing what area, maybe it's dealing with the relationships with upper management at work or maybe it's not being happy in your career, but where is that place that you're stuck? How would you like things to be? And then the main things that I really like to uh, connect with clients and people on and the book focuses on is first figuring out your motivation, you know, what gets you excited, what's going to get you to move forward, but really looking at what stories are you telling yourself that hold you back and then realizing you are creative and can solve that and pull those ideas out of yourself and then kind of making or writing out the steps or thinking about the steps that, you know, if this is what I want, what are the things that I need to do? Do I need to partner with other people? Do I need to learn more? What is it that I need? 
need to uh, do to move forward and start taking those steps, even if they're little baby steps. So how easy is it for uh, people to make those major steps? You know, I think it can. it's a whole range. It's a whole spectrum again. I've had um, most people be real successful with that, and they felt like the book really gave them the encouragement. And then I was kind of surprised to hear from one or two people that were like, when they went through their values and what was important to them and realizing they were unhappy with their situation, they were kind of like, but... If I'm going to, you know, make a change and be happy, you know, I'm going to have to like quit my job or I'm going to have to do something else and I'm not ready for that. So I think sometimes people can kind of be like, is it that big of a problem right now that I want to make a change or not? They're not really ready to, they haven't been, uh, it isn't as painful or painful enough yet for them to make the move. So I think it's a really personal thing. What's involved for the person itself, for the person themselves making that move? Well, it's a little bit of awareness and self-reflection. A lot of times it helps uh, talking it out with other people, with a coach or with friends. I think um, a lot of times you can even notice that maybe a friend or a coworker or someone is kind of ready to make that move because of the way that they're talking about their situation all the time. So part of it is just realizing that you are in that place and it can be something you come through. Actually, one of my friends or one of my clients actually came up with this. She calls it come to Jesus moment, that that place where you realize that you are so frustrated and so uncomfortable and don't want to be in this place anymore, that you just have to do something. So I think a lot of times people just get to that place where they just don't want things to be this way anymore. And that's when they're ready to start making that move. The come to Jesus moment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you don't even have to know who Jesus is. You know, it's kind of just that place that, you know, it's a big aha, a big realization, a big seeing the light of what could be instead of being stuck where I am anymore. Now, you work with a whole variety of industries and, uh, I mean, and you, you actually come from the utilities industry, I believe. Now, which, uh, which industries are more susceptible to these sorts of issues? I really think it's a universal kind of issue, but I think depending on, so for example, in Houston, Texas, where I am right now, we've really been having, you know, with the oil and gas industry and the, the crisis there and the downfall and the lowering of prices and everything that's going on there. I think sometimes when the industry is struggling, that people struggle a little bit more. So, you know, many years ago, the power industry, we were going through reorganization and, you know, deregulation. And I think sometimes when the industry that you're in is having a struggle, then you kind of get kind of wrapped up into that or fearful or holding back. So I think it, a lot of it can kind of depend on either the culture in your organization or what's really kind of happening in uh, the world or that that industry that can kind of affect whether it's more of an issue or not. How radical a step do you have to take to uh, reshape your working life? I mean, a lot of people would, a lot of people are very reluctant to change. And a lot of people get into a comfort zone. They're reluctant to move out, even though things aren't working out that well. How do you deal with that? Well, I think that's one of the beauties of my book is not like, this is the way you have to do it. It's kind of like this buffet. And it's like, well, if you're this kind of person and follow all these steps, or maybe if you're just kind of feeling this. So I think a lot of times it's pretty simple. One of the things is just uh, kind of being aware of your mindset and the things you're saying to yourself or how negative or positive you are. Other times it can just be as simple as your focus. Like one of the things that, you know, I have uh, done for myself is because I'm always thinking of different things to just get myself to sit down at my computer and stay focused and work. I use what's called a Pomodoro technique, like the Italian 
word for tomato. And you set a timer for 25 minutes and then take a five minute break and then stay focused again for 25 minutes. So it doesn't always have to be a huge major change. And I think maybe that's what kind of prevents people from making the move. It could be as simple as setting a timer and staying focused on something. And that could be the whole thing that takes you from SOS to wow or changes everything for you at your work. Even how you pay attention to people or stay focused in meetings. Sometimes it can be a simple little thing like that that can really make a jump for you. So when you discuss these things with people, you actually get them to delve deep into themselves to see what they're doing wrong and what they need to do right. Yes. And it's a self-discovery. It's uh, with questioning and listening to them. It's helping them figure it out because when you figure out what you need to do, you're more apt to make a change if I tell you what to do. (laughs) You may not so much believe or like my advice, right? So it's coaching and um, when I work with clients, it's about helping them discover that and that's when they're more apt to to go forward because they really believe it and understand it and know that it's true for them. So rather than you telling them what to do, you lead them to, for them to discover what they need to do. Yes. And uh, from there, it becomes much more entrenched uh, and the change becomes much more real. Yes. We, we also work with them to help them kind of figure out how they can keep themselves motivated, what blocks might come up that might hold them back, how could they work through those. But we kind of work through all that with them and makes the journey a bit easier. Well, Margaret Johnson, thank you very much for your time. Well, I appreciate it. I enjoyed the conversation. Well, businesses need coaching and there she is. I think that I think that's the sort of stuff that uh, everyone should be listening to. And now Nick Gruen on the thoughts of making things better. Nicholas Gruen, what is a well-being framework? Uh, well, the Treasury announced under Ken Henry. I'm not exactly sure when, but uh, you know, in the early 2000s, that it was embracing a well-being framework. And I guess this goes back. The basic thinking behind this goes back a long way. Around about the turn of the the century before that, economists were talking quite a lot about how to build their profession and how uh, essentially money is an input to well-being. Uh, You earn money, you're given money or whatever, and you use it to satisfy your needs. And so there's sort of been debate in the community for a long time about this tension between measuring money, which is what we do with GDP, and whether that is a good measure of the community's well-being. And it tends to be the case that when a an economy has grown steadily for a long time, people start getting a bit antsy and they say, well, look, we're not just... Uh, Uh, We shouldn't be uh, worrying just about the economy. We should be worried about how much we are directing our economic resources to real human well-being. So it was in that context that, that, for instance, the French government established a commission under Nobel Prize winner Amartya Sen, uh, Nobel Prize winner Joe Stiglitz, and a presumer Frenchman called Mr. Fatusi, or no doubt Professor Fatusi, to give them a report on how to manage government to deliver well-being rather than just dollars. Uh, David Cameron get, got in on the act and talked about well-being. And with this, so this was a kind of a global movement. And Ken Henry got the Treasury to say uh, that uh, it was, uh, you know, it adopted a five-point charter, which was supposed to be a, a well-being framework, and they gave speeches about it and so on. Uh, my 
take on this is that this, the the charter was not a bad charter. I could have been, I think there are some odd things about it, but it was a good idea. But that it was really a kind of higher level bureaucratic rhetoric and nothing nothing changed. So I'm going to be publishing some article, some essays on that subject uh, and looking at wellbeing frameworks in New Zealand, Australia, the UK, and then at the academic level. You're saying it's used bureaucratically in Australia, so that suggests it's not that effective. Uh, how is it used overseas? A little better. It's really the fact that it's taken a bit more seriously. So uh, Ken, I don't know, you know, I'm not really trying to apportion blame here. In a way, Ken Henry is to be uh, congratulated, I guess, for uh, raising the issue. It seems to me he would have had enough power to have a wellbeing framework actually influence policy a little more, or at least influence the flavour with which uh, he and other senior Treasury officials spoke about how you uh, make policy recommendations with well-being in mind, and that didn't really happen. So that John Fraser, the uh, newish Treasury Secretary, about eighteen months ago, I think it is now, abolished the well-being framework, and quite a few people were upset about it. But I had a bit of a debate with an ex-Treasury officer on his blog, a guy called Gene Tunney, uh, who's in. Uh, Brisbane. Uh, and I said, well, tell me something that the framework influenced. And he was <laughs> rather didn't come up with anything much. Now, lateral economics runs the Hale Index, the Herald Age Lateral Economics Index of Wellbeing, which tries to take the numbers that go into GDP and translate them into uh, and, and correct them for the largest, the most conspicuous ways in which GDP might deviate from well-being. But my interest in writing about this was that the New Zealand Treasury seems to be taking well-being quite a bit more seriously, and they got in touch with me, and we had a pretty interesting several-hour conversation at uh, my office a few or now over a month ago, and I, I basically challenged them. I said, look, you've taken this a lot more seriously than Australia has, but... I don't really think it's making, you know, you can't really give me much evidence that it's made a big difference to the way you think about policy. And rather what happens is you tend to think about policy in a pretty similar way and then you put all these well-being words into your justification. Uh, and, I mean, that's something of a caricature and I think it's absolutely clear that they've done a lot better. They've taken it a lot more seriously than the Australian Treasury. So I respect them for it. Uh, but I still think they've stopped well short of taking it really seriously. And uh, I've also tried to sketch out what that might look like. Two questions here. What sort yep. of issues should uh, the Wellbeing Index uh, take into account? And how can governments actually take it more seriously? Yeah. The thing about this is that if you focus on well-being and you focus on well-being uh, because you're not happy with just focusing on GDP, or the, so far, so good. Then the question comes, well, here's a way that you could focus. Well, I mean, one way, one thing that I think a, a sort of utilitarian well-being framework turns up as a policy result, and this was a very common idea at the turn of the 20th century, is that a well-being framework tends to suggest, and a utilitarian well-being framework tends to suggest that if you take money from the rich and give it to the poor, that will improve well-being. 
Why? Because the last dollar of income to the rich meets very much less urgent needs than the last dollar of income to the poor. Now, that's an okay conclusion, I think. At some stage, you might be concerned about incentives and a whole lot of other things. My point in raising that is not to say that therefore wellbeing indexes should lead us to that conclusion, because I think they can lead us to all sorts of conclusions that we can be more confident about before they lead us to that one. The thing about that conclusion is that that will breed a lot of political excitement and contention. It will put your well-being framework again, over and against as a contradiction to your other framework, and different people have different views. So I think what a well-being framework should do in the first instance, before we get to the hard questions, is to do something, take a leaf out of the greenhouse policy manual. And you'll recall uh, in the your sort of, uh, well, late 90s, where there was a lot of talk about no regrets measures. Now, what no regrets measures are, are measures that stack up on one framework and also not only don't do any harm in the other framework, but actually do some good. So once we realised that we re it was a good idea to try and lower carbon emissions, there were lots of things we could do to satisfy that need at the same time as making a lot of economic sense. So changing light bulbs in our house would actually save us money and have really quite large impacts on emissions, not on absolute emissions, but on the relative emissions. In other words, you could cut the emissions from lighting by, you know, 80, 90 percent, as well as saving money. Well, that's a pretty good win-win kind of story. And so that's what I'd like to see people do with well-being frameworks. There are oodles of areas where if we focus on well-being, we can turn up very large economic gains. If we could address Aboriginal community dysfunction, we would send Aboriginal well-being through the roof because it's about as low as it can get. But we would save ourselves huge amounts of money. We would save ourselves money with policing, with jailing people, with dysfunctional educational systems and health systems, which are incredibly expensive. So that's an example. In the UK, I don't know whether it was their well-being framework, but in the UK, they've pursued a loneliness agenda. One of the things that they, one of the things that is quite clear uh, in the data, is that particularly for older people, loneliness, uh, particularly people whose spouses died, uh, and particularly men, men are less socially well-connected than women. That is a big dra drag on their well-being. Uh, it's a big drag on their health. It's a big drag, ultimately, on the health budget. So addressing those kinds of things can directly benefit loneliness, uh, can directly benefit well-being. But because the way you do it isn't by paying people to go and talk to older people, but by stimulating voluntary social contact and community contact at the community level, it's just pretty cheap. And you will find, I think, and this is an assertion by me, but I'm pretty sure that you will find all sorts of ways in which that saves the budget, most particularly in delaying people's admission to nursing homes. One final example is child protection, which is 
abuse and neglect of children is a disaster. It's growing at twice the rate of the pop of the population of children that we have. Once you have a child that has to be taken off their parents, that child's children is much more likely, kind of 90, no, probably about a five, 10 times more likely to have children who will have to be taken off their parents and so on. So breaking that cycle is expensive, but the cost of the the cost of these things is just going through the roof. So those are a whole range of areas where we could, these are no regrets measures. These are measures that would very powerfully drive well-being, very powerfully improve well-being and be very good for our economy. It's kind of sad that uh, none of that sort of thinking uh, came out of treasuries, certainly the Australian Treasury's wellbeing framework, and they don't come out with any great vigour in the wellbeing framework in France or Britain or New Zealand. It's fascinating stuff, Nicholas Gruen. That is really, really, that's a really worthy contribution. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks very much, Leon. So how do you read Nick this time? It's a very, very interesting point, isn't it? It it would actually be really good if you could actually use his model for it because uh, that would look at a whole lot of issues like, for example, climate change. Exactly right. It might focus a few brains. There's not an awful lot in Australia being directed at these pressing issues. And it's important. Now, Leon, the news. First of all, analysts are warning that the global business cycle is nearing a peak, leaving equity and credit markets at risk of a painful drop once the economic headwinds inevitably take hold. Analysts at HSBC Holdings, Citigroup and Morgan Stanley see mounting evidence that global markets are in the last stage of their rallies before a downturn in the business cycle. They cite signals including the breakdown of a long-standing relations between stock, bonds and commodities, as well as investors ignoring valuation fundamentals and data from all the earnings and economic information pouring in. And their warnings come even after the sell-off triggered this month by President Donald Trump's political standoff with North Korea and racial violence in Virginia. And of course, there was another sell-off this morning when Donald Trump talked about shutting down the US because they weren't going to build the wall and he was talking of pulling out of NAFTA and there was another sell-off. Cloud cuckoo stuff, how could he do that? Just shut down the government, deny funds. Well, that is just extraordinary. It's an extraordinary... And of course, uh, they are approaching... The US is approaching a debt ceiling and that's going to make it a little bit more complicated. And Trump hasn't the faintest clue. <laughs> okay. Now, the other important piece of news is that law firm Morris Blackburn, in conjunction with IMF Bentham, is launching class action against Commonwealth Bank over money laundering allegations. The CBA share price has fallen sharply in the wake of it being charged with more than 53,000 alleged breaches of Australia's anti-money laundering laws, affecting CBA's 800,000 shareholders. Morris Blackburn says it looms as the largest class action in Australian history. It's expected to focus on how the bank failed to properly monitor and disclose suspicious transactions with its intelligence deposit machines, similar to ATMs, which were used by criminal gangs to launder millions of dollars. And when the Australian Transaction Reports and Analysis Centre, or Austrac, launched legal proceedings against the CBA, CBA shares dropped from an intraday high of $84.69 on the 3rd of August to an opening price of $80.11 on the 7th of August. Interesting thing, isn't it? The shareholders are suing the shareholders. That's right, but uh, it's going to be huge. For Morris Blackburn, a lot of money. 
Uh, I think so too, but it's going to be very, very damaging for the Commonwealth Bank. Oh, yes, indeed. Now, low wages growth has sent consumer confidence plunging again. Australian consumer confidence has fallen for the third week, sticking to 109.2 from a high of 118.4 only three weeks ago, according to the ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Index. Consumer confidence is now at its lowest level since mid-2015, and the figures come after the Australian Bureau of Statistics released figures last week showing a deceleration in private sector wage growth. And also, another important piece of news, the Victorian government has announced plans to build two new solar plants to power Melbourne's tram network. The awarding of two large contracts to build the plants coincides with the introduction of legislation for the Victorian renewable energy targets, the largest renewable energy auction in Australia. The Bannerton Solar Park near Robinvale in the Sunraysia district is expected to provide 100 megawatts of solar-powered electricity. And the Nemurka Solar Farm near Shepparton is expected to generate 38 megawatts. Now, the legislation introduced into the Victorian Parliament this week will set new renewable energy targets for Victoria of 25 by 2020 and 40% by 2025. And the Victorian government says this will cut the average cost of power for Victorians by around $30 a year for households, $2,500 a year for medium businesses and $140,000 a year for large companies. And the power plants are expected to create 1,250 construction jobs over two years and 90 ongoing jobs. It's fascinating. The, the Liberals in Victoria have attacked the Labor government saying that they shouldn't be doing this because it should be a federal business and of course the feds aren't doing anything about renewable energy so what are they talking about? That's right that's right and of course the other big issue for the businesses is whether the retailers will pass on the cost cuts. Absolutely (laughs) on present form they won't. Now the Australian Bankers Association says it will take South Australia to the High Court if it introduces its bank tax and it's warned the cash strap West Australian government which is mulling an SA style bank tax to relieve debt that it will also face litigation. Now South Australia unveiled the bank tax in its state budget in June. The tax will charge ANZ, Commonwealth Bank of Australia, Macquarie, National Australia Bank and Westpac a rate of 0.015% of the state's share of bank liabilities, which will raise about $370 million over four years. While the legislation has passed through the state's House of Assembly, it's stuck in the upper house as the numbers for and against are even. And the WA government is considering doing the same. It will announce its plans in its September the 7th budget. It's starting to look as though we're, we're more separate sovereign states than a federation, isn't it? No. It'll be very interesting to see what happens if this goes to the High Court. Uh, that would be. It'd be a hard one for them because right. they are sovereign states. They are sovereign states and the question is whether there are constitutional grounds to yeah. block it. Now, the Consumer Watchdog has directed telcos and internet service providers to clean up their advertising and marketing of broadband services over the national broadband network. The Australian Competition Consumer Commission has set down tough new advertising guidelines, pointing out that what's on offer now is not good enough. ACCC Chair Rod Sims said the regulation with regulator was taking the unusual step of providing guidance to the industry because the advertising around MBM products is, in his words, poor, which he says is unacceptable in the context of a forced migration over to the MBM. And the aim is to move retailers from advertising their services based on the maximum internet speeds that might be delivered during off-peak periods to the speeds consumers can expect to achieve during busy evening periods between 7 and 11pm. Mr Sims says it's not acceptable to advertise an up-to-speed claim as this can give the false impression that the speed advertised is achievable at most times, including during the busy period. And he pointed out that in some cases it's not clear from the advertisements what sort of internet speeds consumers can expect at all. He said currently... 
around 30% of MBN customers have been sold low-speed plans, with many not realising their internet speeds may not be any better, and in some cases worse, than existing ADSL services. And many other NBN customers, while on higher-speed services, experienced lower-than-expected speeds during busy periods due to under-provisioning of capacity by their retail service provider. Now, these new rules, Gary, are important with the rollout of a super-fast broadband network now moving through metropolitan areas. And according to the ACCC guidelines, consumers experiencing problems with their network connections or other faults that affect their service should have these issues resolved quickly. And if not, they should be offered a a refund or cancellation of their contract. And one of the interesting things about this is that the NBN is a shared network, which is why sometimes ADSL will be uh, faster. Something a lot of people don't understand, but it's uh, it's certainly something that has to be clarified. And And I do see a lot of fast and loose advertising of claims around it. Mark, you know, I'm one of the lucky ones. I lost only about 4% of my 115 megabit um, network that I had from Telstra, uh, but most only get about half their previous speed. Now, Gary, it's been a big week for the August profit reporting season, and here are some of the company profits. BHP Billiton posted a full-year net profit of US $5.89 billion. That's $7.42 billion. That's up from a loss of US $6.385 billion the year before, so their profit increased sixfold. A2 Milk more than tripled its full-year profit to New Zealand 90.65 million, that's 83.17 million Aussie from a year ago. Woolworths reported its full year underlying net profit slipping 3.6% to 1.42 billion. Private hospitals operator HealthScope has posted a 39% fall in full year net profit to 110.9 million. Monodelphus Group's full year net profit fell 14.1% to 57.563 million. Coca Cola Amatil posted a 4% fall in underlying net profit to 190.1 million in the six months ending. June. Charter Hall Group posted a 19.7% jump in full year net profit to 257.5 million, up from last year's 215.2 million. Corporate Travel Management posted full year net profit of 54.56 million, up 29% from 42.13 million a year ago. Cedarwoods Properties posted a 4.2% rise in net profit to a record 45.4 million from the year ended June 30. Poultry producer Ingham's posted a full-year net profit of $102 million, up 22.8%. Kerry Stokes' seven group holdings reported a 16.6% rise in net profit to $213.7 million in the year ended June 30, with earnings before interest and tax uh, jumping 10% to $333.3 million. Australia's biggest milk processor, Murray Goldburn, posted a $370.8 million loss compared to the profit of $39.8 million a year ago. Write-downs related to its milk payment crisis in 2016 did the damage to its bottom line. Sydney Airport reported a 4% rise in interim net profit to $167 million. Northern Star Resources posted a record net annual profit of $215.3 million, up from $154.4 million a year before. The nation's largest listed agricultural trust, Rural Funds Group, reported adjusted earnings of 78% in the year ended June 30 to $25.6 million, delivering a distribution of 9.64 cents per unit. Global packaging company Amcor more than doubled its full-year statute 
statutory profit to US $597 million, that's $752 million Aussie, up from last year's US $244.1 million. Insurance Australia Group's full-year net profit rose 48.6% to $929 million from the $625 million a year ago. Sunland Group reported 12% increase in after-tax profit of $35.3 million for the year ended June 30. Wally Parsons posted a 42.6% rise in net profit after-tax of $33.5 million for the 12 months ended June 30. Oil Search posted a six-fold increase in net profit after tax of US $129.1 million, up from US $25.6 million the year before. A rebound in iron ore and low costs has seen Fortescue Metals Group more than doubling its full-year net profit to US $2.09 billion. That's uh, Aussie $2.64 billion. Logistics firms Bramble's full-year profit fell 69% to US $182.9 million. That's... Uh, 230.6 million Aussie. This was on the back of a US $243.8 million write-down of its North American recycled pallets business. A commercial and industrial property groups Goodman's full-year net profit fell 39% to $778.1 million. Blue Scope Skills full-year net profit doubled to $715.9 million. Health insurer NIB has posted a 24.7% rise in statutory operating profit to $150.6 million for the year ended June 30. Stronger oil prices have seen Beach Energy posting a net profit of $387.5 million for the 12 months through to June, compared to a loss of $588.8 million the year before. APN Outdoor posted a 7% lift in earnings to $37.2 million and 4% rise in underlying net profit to $21.4 million. G8 Education reported 23% lift in net profit to $30.5 million. And GWA Group posted a 3% increase in net profit after tax at $53.7 million. And that's it for this week, Gary. Good on, Leon, and... Uh... Next week, we're talking to... Asha Rao. She's the Associate Dean at RMIT of Mathematical Sciences, and she's been looking very closely at money laundering. And she's going to be very interesting to talk to in light of what's happening with the Commonwealth Bank. Yep, indeed. That'll be really fascinating. And that's it for us for now. And if you want to uh, tune in to us, you can listen to us on Twitter at TalkingBizBRZ or on Facebook. In the meantime, take care and we look forward to bringing you all the business, finance and economics news in just 30 minutes next week.